1 Kings chapter 17 and verses 17 through 24. Ray Dillard in his um, commentary on the lives of Elijah and Elisha writes thusly, some of the most beautiful weather that people can enjoy ordinarily occurs during the hours just before a hurricane hits the shore. The cyclonic rotation and low pressure of the giant storm clears the skies around it. And that has particular application to the text before us this morning because this widow uh, in, of Zarephath, Zarephath has uh, enjoyed uh, the clear sky, if you will, of the blessing of God with the coming of Elijah and the promise that there would be enough flour and enough oil for them to survive the famine that had come upon the land. Remember, the famine had come upon the land in, in, in a very real sense uh, as a result of the justice and the judgment of God. The very first sermon in this series was entitled The Worst of Times, and really it was a desperate period of time as Ahab of uh, uh, the northern kingdom uh, married this uh, pagan woman Jezebel and had turned the northern kingdom uh, into a disciple uh, of Baal, uh, the false uh, god. God raised up Elijah to confront Ahab uh, and to deal with this matter. And, of course, that is the, uh, the, the series that uh, we're engaged in uh, at this particular time. And it's interesting how important Elijah is because he's mentioned some 30 times in the New Testament, most of the time in connection with John the Baptist and then on the Mount of Transfiguration joins Moses uh, um, and um, Moses and Elijah speak with um, the Lord Jesus Christ about his coming um, death upon the cross. Elijah is a man for the times, but he has as his supporter, he has as the one who encourages him, as the one who speaks to him, the God, Jehovah himself. And he gives a word to the prophet in verses 8 through 16. And now we come to this particular text, which seems to be um, altogether contrary to what we've seen. Yes, it's the worst of times, but God raises up a prophet and God speaks to the prophet and God provides for the prophet and God provides for this woman. And now it seems as if he takes it all away with the death of this woman's son. And yet, as we'll see in a moment, he's not taking it away, but once again, there is a acted out word that is a comfort through the prophet Elijah to this woman. Someone has suggested that there's a kind of symmetrical development in these verses. 
that there's a solidarity um, uh, about them, even in the context of, of great severity, meaning the death of this son, seemingly contradictory to what God had promised by giving them uh, or by saying that the bread or that the flour and the oil um, would remain. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, the Lord is at work preserving life, and yet in every segment, some frustration, some obstacle arises that threatens to prevent his work. So you see what he's getting at, that he raises up a prophet, and he provides for the prophet, and then that provision is taken away. Uh, the ravens stop feeding him, the, the brook dries up, uh, and he leaves. And then he uses Elijah to provide for this woman and who is about to die, and her son. She's collecting a few sticks to build a fire for one last meal, and they're given meal, or they're given flour, and oil in order to keep making bread. And so he gives, and then it appears as if he takes away. We're talking about the Lord now. And then he gives, and now it seems as if he's taking away. And so there is this repetition, and the stage is becoming higher and more critical with each section that we have. So coming back to Davis, he says, the Lord is at work preserving life, and yet at every segment some frustration, some obstacle arises that threatens to prevent his work. The brook dries up. The channel of supply is destitute. And now death attacks one of their lives, lives that have been preserved to date. And then he says this, he says, rip verses 17 through 24 from the rest of the chapter and you wreck what seems to be a deliberate, cohesive, literary pattern. Provision, and then something taken away. Provision, something lost. Provision, and some frustration. He says, actually, on the next page uh, 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 in his commentary, he says, the Lord provides and perplexes. He seems to be both faithful and fitful. He sustains life, and then he takes it away. What is one to make of him? An interesting question. There is the multiplication of the widow's food, and then the death of her son, followed by the resurrection of her son. What's going on? We have calamity, mystery. Is there culpability or guilt? The, the woman seems to think Elijah has brought this on her because she might be guilty of something. We'll come to that in a moment. 
Then there's Elijah's ministry, and there's life again, vitality, resurrection. And the passage closes with this great statement of faith on the part of this woman. Now I know. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What do we make of all of this? Well, there are five things I think that are be found in the text. First of all, notice the providence of God. Again, Davis writes, the tokens of life sat on her shelf while the fact of death lay in her arms. Matthew Henry, I think, gives us some perspective on all of this when he says, we must not think it strange if we meet with sharp afflictions even when we are in the way of duty and of eminent service to God. In fact, Peter uses similar language in his first epistle when he says, don't think it's strange. He speaks of a fiery trial that comes upon God's people. And so the occasion is one of sadness and sorrow and, and lamentation. The details are clear. They will not die of starvation. And undoubtedly she would have seen in this gift and promise, the promise of ongoing life, which doesn't take place. And so, lamentation, sadness, sorrow. A divine stroke has come her way. And she moves from satisfaction to affliction. There are a number of things that we can say about this right at the outset. First of all, the text seems to be marked by incongruity. Why would God be so good and then seem to take away the very uh, life, the very reason for her life and her living, her son? The divine stroke comes on with with great rapidity, with, with a, a kind of uh, rapid appearance. And it's not something that anyone can recover from. Death is irreversible. He's dead, he's gone, and there's no way to bring him back, so she thinks. But when we think of death, we think of it as, it, it, as irreversible. And then she wonders if maybe perhaps she's guilty of bringing this upon her home. In addition to that, draws attention to the vulnerability of all of us. There's no immunity from the hard things of life. In fact, Job makes the point, if we have received good shall we not receive also evil. And so there's a kind of mystery that is attached to a passage like this, and yet it's clear that God is somehow involved in all of it. 
A.W. Pink puts it this way, How deeply mysterious are the ways of God. The strangeness of the incident now before us is the more evident if we link it with the verse immediately preceding. Verse 16, The jar of meal wasted not, neither did the cruse of oil fail, according to the word of Jehovah, which he spake by Elijah. And then verse 17, And it comes to pass or it came to pass. One writer in the 19th century said, it is pure goodness and fatherly fidelity when the infinitely good heavenly father sends to his children sorrow upon sorrow, lays upon them burden upon burden, and leads them from one distress and trouble into others. And then he says this, in eternity, he will be heartily thanked for nothing more than for this paternal goodness and fidelity. Hard to swallow, perhaps, um, especially if we're in the midst of, of some great trial. How, how do we square the providence of God with the providence of God. How do we understand all of that? Well, this woman had difficulty, and I think her difficulty helps us, and her overcoming that difficulty will help us overcome any difficulty we might have. And so secondly, in verse 18, following the providence of God, the perplexity of faith, we see in verse 18 that if you will, the pathetic complaint of this woman. That there was, uh, uh, verse 18, And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Thou art come unto me to bring my sin to remembrance and to slay my son. And so she complains. And... Uh, I'm not sure how public the complaint was, but it was certainly a complaint to God's prophet, to Elijah. She has no prospect for the future. Her only means of support and, and maintenance was gone in that she was a widow. And then she had a son who she thought she might lose, and yet he is delivered. And yet it seems as if she's forgotten that for the moment, having overlooked the benefits that she had received, and at the very same time recognizes that her future is grim, if not hopeless. And she speaks of the prophet slaying that is, having some responsibility for the death of her son. But you promised. You promised that the flour would not run out, that the meal would not run out, that the oil would not run out. You promised and inherit in the promise, as I mentioned earlier, or suggested by the promise, is that nothing will happen to me or to my son because we'll always have something to eat. And now you've taken my son. What have I to do 
with you. You have taken his life. Now, I don't think it's eisegesis or reading into the text what was going through her mind, or at least possibly going through her mind as she said those words. She expresses herself passionately, whereas she had expressed herself calmly in verse 12. When we first meet her, she's picking up sticks to build a fire. She's prepared herself for the worst. She's going to prepare one last meal for her son and herself, and then she's going to lay down and die. How could she speak so calmly? But it's true, she does, and now so passionately. What have you done? O man of God. Number of things are suggested, I think, by this verse. First of all, impatience. Um, Is this any way to treat me? You treated me with kindness. Now you've pulled out the rug from underneath me. Why in the world would you do that? How could you be so unkind. Or perhaps she's accusing Elijah of incompetence. She calls him a man of God, meaning a prophet who speaks the word of God, a minister of the truth of God, and you've brought this upon me. And so she blames him. As ministers often get blamed for all kinds of things. Elijah, you're just incompetent. Or perhaps behind all of that, and I suspect this is the case, there's the element of irreverence. After all, he's the man of God. He's preaching God's word. He's saying what God has told him to say. Therefore, all of this is God's fault. She blames God as if God had done an awful thing by slaying her son. It is incomprehensible to her, knowing what she would claim to know about the character of God, that God is a sovereign, that he's in control of all things, and if he's in control of all things, why doesn't he exercise, or why didn't he exercise control over the life of my son? Or perhaps it's indifference. That is, she charges God with indifference. He doesn't really care at all. And we run that risk, do we not, when we encounter difficult things and in a heart of hearts, why doesn't God care? Why doesn't he help me? Why, Why doesn't he resolve this? If he really loved me, if he really cared, he wouldn't allow me, he wouldn't insist that I pass through such deep waters and face the worst. And then there's the inference here that perhaps she's being paid back for some great sin. Embedded in verse 18 is the thought that perhaps you brought this upon me and it's, a, and it's payback for something I've done for perhaps being a part of Baal worship. After all, that's where she, where she comes from. She, she's 
comes from Phoenicia, and uh, Jezebel was was uh, her uh, uh, princess, as it were, the, the daughter of uh, the king. And so perhaps I'm being punished for something that I have done. Punishment even for some hidden sin that isn't even mentioned here, and we know nothing about. It's a rather common conclusion, is it not? It's very easy to embrace that. God is, God is now punishing me. And we seem to have forgotten the, the doctrines of the gospel. Justification on account of Christ alone through faith alone. And the benefits of God's saving work for us. Or perhaps, finally, she believes that she's been mistreated because of her service to God. She had entertained a prophet. The prophet had come to live in her home. She was marked by good works, and her good works should account for something. A sort of self-righteous perspective that I don't deserve this because of what I've done for the Lord of heaven. Roger Ellsworth, in his little volume punished, uh, published many years ago by the Banner of Truth on the story of Elijah, wrote, When some calamity or trial befalls us, we immediately feel we have to find a way to explain it. And like her, we find it easy to blame God ourselves or both. And Pink says, she might ask, is this how God repays those who befriend his servants? And the implication is, we would be kinder than God himself has been. And again, coming back to Davis, he writes, we can only say this woman discovered early on that the Lord both sustains and uh, bewilders, both delights and devastates. The thought is foolish. Her thoughts. But in this folly, as one writer has said, what truth of feeling and humility. Why? Or again, as Matthew Henry writes, we must not think it strange if we meet with very sharp afflictions, even when we are in the way of duty and of eminent service to God. Now we need to notice Elijah's comeback. Notice what it is? There isn't one. He doesn't respond to what she says. In other words, he doesn't attack, as it were, her wrong-headed notions, but rather does something 
altogether different. He doesn't say, well, your thinking is wrong. He doesn't say to her, well, we need to look at it differently. We need to look at it this way or something else, the way we might be inclined to do, to, to sort of explain away. Rather, there's this acted out, um, this, almost this, this parable of, of, of truth. Pink, in fact, puts it this way. If one speaks to us so unadvisably with his lips, there is no reason why we should descend to his level. And someone else has written, this error the prophet sets aside, not by means of a long didactic reply, but by a rescuing action which must have convinced her that the distress did not overtake her on account of her special sin, but for the glory of God, and that the works of God might be manifest thereby. So we see, first of all, the, the providence of God, then the perplexity of faith. It's not that those of us in this room have never been in a situation where we questioned God. But thirdly, notice the power of death. That is the strength of the difficulty that she was facing in verses 20 and 21. This was death itself. And we notice its suddenness. There is a reminder here that death comes to everyone sometime. And sometimes suddenly and out of order. This is the reverse of what we would expect. Her husband has died. We would expect her to be next, next on the list. And then third and finally, some day later, much later, the son would die. But now it's out of order. His father is dead, and now he is dead. We notice not only its suddenness, but its seriousness. Death is final. Now, some would deny that there was a miracle here, that um, he had just been very, very sick, maybe went into a coma and was revived. But but the best understanding of the text is that he actually died. And the word slay is used twice in the context. The son actually died, reminding us of the suggestiveness of this problem, and that is that there are some things that only God can correct. We can't correct. We have no ability to correct them. We have no ability to fix them. And then thirdly, notice its, or fourth, notice its source in verse 20. Elijah traces the death of the son not to the famine, but rather to the Lord. Not to some mysterious illness or an accident, but to the Lord himself as Elijah prayed. And he cried unto Jehovah and said, O Jehovah my God, 
Hast thou also brought even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? He lays it at the feet of the Lord. And as Tom Lyon wrote, rightly so. So there is the providence of God, the perplexity of faith, to which Elijah doesn't give an immediate answer correcting her muddle-headed thinking. Thirdly, the power of death. Here is the real loss of life and the death of this child. And then fourthly, notice the prayer of faith. In verses 21 and 22, not the woman's faith, but Elijah's faith. And there are a number of things that are um, interesting to uh, uh, observe. First of all, notice the affection of the prophet. The cordial, if you will, the cordiality of, of the text. In verse 19, give me your son. The woman, and he speaks when he speaks, and he prays to the Lord, the woman with whom I sojourn, I have taken up residence. There seems to be some affection here for this family and for this young man. The prayer of faith is also relational. He refers to God as my God, not in a generic sense, not in a distant sense, but my God. And again, as we've already said, the source is is God. It's it's God himself who has brought this upon this house. And yet he prays, so he believes God can help. He takes him to his room, that is, Elijah does. He, uh, he, He does what he does privately as he prays to the Lord. And we need to remember that by carrying this body, this young man who is dead, he has rendered himself unclean ceremonially. And I actually hadn't thought of that. Only one commentator that I found actually even mentioned that at all, but it's important. That Elijah puts himself at risk as he prays for this widow's son. He has rendered himself ceremonially, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, unable, if he were even able to enter into the presence of God in the context of public worship. So I guess the question that emerges from these two verses, at least one of them, is um, how far are we willing to go in our concern for others, in our prayer for others? Notice that he pleads three times. There's intensity. It's marked by intensity and specificity. Is that true of us as we give thought to the various issues of people around us? And then he does something strange, methodical, It's prophetic. He lies down on top of this young man. Why does he do that? What's the significance of that? 
Was there something therapeutic by breathing on him or into him, calling on the name of the Lord three times? Well, I think it's fair to say, safe to say, that stretching out upon the young man was not magic, but it was symbolic. It was a typical prophetic movement, something that would have been common, not this particular, but the kind of thing common, an acted out way of saying something. And it's Elijah intensely praying, let this lifeless body be as my lively one. And his prayer then fortifies the symbol as he prays to God that God might raise him up once again. Davis writes, Elijah next engages in what seems a strange prophetic action before uttering his explicit prophetic petition. Then we read the miracle words on which the whole story depends. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the lad lives. Davis goes on to say this, Elijah, great prophet that he is or will become, does not work some holy abracadabra. He just doesn't have some easy, convenient gift by which he gets out of this jam. He's not a religious magician who struts into the widow's distress, brandishing some instant razzle-dazzle that is always at his disposal. He is no candidate for super-prophet, he is rather a servant who can do nothing but plead with Jehovah over the affliction of this recent convert. The Lord reduced his servant to weakness. And yet there's, a, there's also a theological note here in that what he prays for is the reunion the resuscitation, the resurrection of you will, of this young man bringing together body and soul. Notice the implication that man is made up of two parts, body and soul, even as Ecclesiastes chapter 12 reminds us that our remains return to the dust but the Spirit returns to the Lord or to the one who made it. And so here there is a theological statement with regard to body and soul. Now, fifthly and finally, in this verse or two, three verses, verses 22, 23, and 24, we discover fifthly and finally the presence of salvation. Providence of God, the perplexity of faith, the power of death, the prayer of faith, and finally the presence of salvation. Notice these verses again. 
And Jehovah hearkened unto the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of Jehovah in thy mouth is true. Four things. The presence of salvation. How? By way of divine action. Elijah didn't breathe life into him. Again, what Elijah did was making a prophetic statement. It's the Lord who raised him up and reunited body and soul. God heard and God reunited the soul and the body of this young man. So the presence of salvation in these three verses is by way of divine action. Secondly, through ministerial proclamation. Behold, your son lives, preaches a sermon. He ministers the word and she hears about what God himself has done. God does the acting. His servants do the proclaiming so that men may hear. Thirdly, the presence of salvation is by way of divine action through ministerial proclamation producing believing conviction, satisfaction. Her faith is strengthened. Her faith advances. She said, now I know. Actually, it, previously she said that she had known that he was a prophet. So she had known something before, but now she knows with greater assurance, with greater conviction, with greater confession, now I really know, though really is my addition. She experiences a higher level of trust because of what she has passed through and because of God's action and because of how Elijah interprets it for her. Now she has full assurance in view of divine activity. So here is the presence of salvation by way of divine action through ministerial proclamation producing believing conviction, pointing to future resurrection. Pastor Stephan had selected hymns and psalms having to do with death and burial and all of the rest. And they're fitting, even though he's not here to preach, fitting in terms of what we're looking at here and the hope that a believer has for resurrection. The writer to the book of Hebrews tells us that he is the God of the living. Hebrews eleven thirty five. It points us in the direction of Christ's resurrection, even as the Psalms that we sang this morning 
do Psalm 16, for example. It points to Christ's resurrection. It, it points us in the direction of the believer's regeneration, which is linked to resurrection. It's a, it's a resurrection of sorts, a being raised to newness of, of life. And with the promise of future restoration, just as this young boy, the soul and the body coming together again, and he's raised up. Here is a prophetic action on the part of Elijah and a prophecy, as it were, regarding the future. This act of revival as one writer has said, leads to a remarkable statement of faith by the most intimate witness, that is, this mother. Well, a couple of things um, we should note and um, to leave you with some application as we finish this morning. First of all, and greatly important, we need to learn from the text that divine blessing and believing obedience do not make life trouble-free. One of the hardest things for us to learn. So easy to blame God or blame those around us or blame ourselves when the reality is that God has introduced certain things into our lives with the goal in mind, actually, of giving to us this same full assurance that this woman came to possess. But the point to be made here is that divine blessing, believing obedience do not lead to a trouble-free life. It's not all skating downhill without some bumps in the road. Even faith may lose its vitality. Faith may lose its vitality in the strongest of God's people. Think of William Cooper, sometimes pronounced Cowper, and we'll sing one of his hymns um, later on today. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. God surprises his people with certain things and then surprises them with the resolution of those matters. Well, what do we do then when we're faced with this sort of circumstance or, or set of circumstances? And we face trouble and we face difficulty of, of the worst kind, of the worst sort. The most devastating things happen to us. Well, secondly then, when God seems to fail, pray perseveringly and believingly. Here's a call to prayer by the people of God. When God seems to fail, Pray first perseveringly and believingly. It's exactly what Elijah did and then was able to produce the result by way of his ministry 
to this woman, who then thirdly responded, I knew, that is, I know, but now I really know. And if we take all of the experiences and the circumstances of life and we tally them up, I suspect that most, if not all of us, could look back over a lifetime of Christian living and seeing the Lord intervene in the most difficult, horrific, horrendous experiences that we have been called to pass through. Early church father Chrysostom or Chrysostom says of Elijah, now, since thou hast learned sympathy, go hence and preach and speak to the people. Fourthly, we learn once again from this particular passage that we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. And again, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 35 reminds us that God is the God of the living and he is the one who raises the dead, the very language that that passage uses. And Pink writes, Alas, how ready we are to mistake the ground of our afflictions and ascribe them to false causes. And as this woman, we face despair. And it's only when the prophetic word reaches us that we may enjoy, as in the title of the sermon, comfort. Comfort for the times, comfort for the worst of times. Comfort for all times. And what is that comfort? It can be reduced to one very simple sentence. God can raise the dead. What a blessed truth. And if God can do the greater, will he not do the lesser? If God can do the greater, it's argument from the greater to the less or lesser. If God can raise the dead and will raise the dead and did raise the dead. Raising a dead one that has far-reaching implications for us and for our salvation. Now, if God can do that and if God did do that, can he not and will he not Keep his beloved people safe and bring them, even if it's in an untimely manner, safely to himself. I know, but now I really know. She says, Father in heaven, we are thankful for this passage, for this text, uh, for how it speaks to us. And we pray that we might learn from it to be 
men and women of faith and be able to say, as this woman did, I know, but now I really know. May we keep our eyes on the prize, but also keep our eyes on the one who brings us to the prize, certainly, ultimately, but even now through deliverance from the various experiences and circumstances of life. Create within us hearty faith. And we pray that even as we come to the Lord's table, that our faith may be strengthened. We have read the word, we've sung the word, we've heard the word preached, and now we see the word and have fellowship and communion with him. And may this occasion enable us to say, I know, I did know, and I am here because I know these things to be true, but now seeing Christ and having communion with him, may we all be able to say, now I really know. Give to us full assurance, we pray in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his name. Amen.